This is episode number 394 with Carl Alamar of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Today's guest is Carl Alomar. Now, Carl is a tech investor, serial entrepreneur, and most well-known for building and scaling a company called DigitalOcean from the ground up, which is one of the fastest growing cloud infrastructure companies in the world. Now, it's valued well over $5 billion dollars. So if you're ready to learn exactly what it takes to scale your business to crazy heights, then this interview is for you. Please welcome to the podcast, Carl Alomar. Welcome, Carl. The first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? So first of all, thanks for having me on, Nathan. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I know we're talking from halfway around the world, so... We're definitely stretching uh, the candle on both ends. But um, my job, so today I'm an investor, I'm a venture investor, but uh, I've actually been an operator for 20 plus years before this. And so uh, how did I get this job? Kind of, you know, beating myself up, trying to build businesses for 20 years and having some decent success, kind of finally decided it was time to go over to the other side. I um, met the two founders of the firm uh, years ago, actually, and they've been, you know, they courted me for a couple of years before I actually joined uh, while I was at DigitalOcean, um, building DigitalOcean. And uh, ultimately, you know, just decided that this was the time for me to kind of go onto the other side, start investing instead of operating, and and just was really excited about pretty much the package that we were building at M13 as a pretty unique venture investor. Yeah, interesting. So do you think growing up you were hardwired to be an entrepreneur? And if so, why? Yeah, definitely. Um, I um, I think I just always uh, kind of was always creating, just always thinking about how to do things a better way and how to create things and how to do things differently. Um, I, I studied engineering in university. And then as soon as I came out, I uh, went and worked for an engineering firm kind of in business development and started traveling around the world, kind of cutting these international deals for them. 
was really young, 21, 22, 23 years old. And by the time I turned 24, I just, you know, just was feeling so constrained by the things that I was having to do that was kind of someone else's plan. And, and just always thinking that there's something that I want to build, I want to do. And just always had that creative mindset. And everything I go into, I've always just felt like, how can this be done better? So whenever I've been in constrained environments where there's a lot of bureaucracy around me, it's been very, very frustrating for me because I always feel like, oh, we could do things so much better. And I don't have the, the facility to do that here. And I've had a couple of stints where I've done that, like when I was doing my MBA. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, just the freedom of being able to create and innovate and take risks and do things just has always been in me. And I think that's what's made uh, being an entrepreneur so much fun. Yeah, love it. So can you take us back to the early days of China export finance? Um, I think that's your first business. What is the origin story there? So that's actually my second business. I, I started that after my MBA. Um, my first business was uh, when I was in my 20s. Um, it was a video networking business. But let's talk about China export finance since that was the question. I, I'd come out of my MBA. Um, as I mentioned, during my MBA, I worked for a big corporate as an intern in, in the summer in between trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And that really just clearly convinced me that I need to be doing something that's creative and my own. Um, and with China for Finance, actually, it was an old high school friend of mine, very, very good friend of mine who had built a fantastic business. He built a business that was doing, I don't know, somewhere in the range of a billion dollars a year in revenue, but they were importing all of the products from China. And you can imagine in the early 2000s, it was wild west in China and there were no financial solutions. There was really nothing supporting trade. You kind of had to create everything yourself. And so he was just expressing to me his frustrations with how you know he was growing at such a rate and his ability to structure financial solutions on how he could kind of procure his goods um, was so difficult. And so I was like, you know what, that sounds like an amazing challenge. And if you're doing a billion and we know how, you know, we know how much China is growing, if you talk about currents of, of, of kind of growth and change, um, we just agreed that, hey, why, why don't I try and solve this? So I started the business with him. He was running his company. So he took a chairman role. I took a CEO role. And uh, we just started kind of trying to figure out a fintech business that would uh, ultimately deliver a buy now, pay later type model to people who in, the, in that time frame were procuring a lot of their CPG type or brand type goods out of China. And um, yeah, that was the beginning of it. And it was a lot of, lot of questions to answer, a lot of barriers to cross. We ended up building a pretty good business. Yeah, wow. So um, from, from, from our research, you built that business to over nine figures in four years um, yeah, that, that's that's pretty impressive growth. Can you tell us about kind of what was the key to unlock the the scale? You know, I think we were just really, you know, there's always that question: Are you smart or are you lucky? But I think we were always just uh, um, had picked the right lane. Um, we knew how much growth there was in people procuring from China at that time. I mean, Chinese growth just speaks for itself in the 2000s, and uh, we also knew how antiquated the system was. And there was no doubt that we were building a tool that any Western buyer would want to take advantage of because there was just no alternative. And we were able to, because we were small and nimble, as opposed to these big banks that were having to kind of pay big, take on big costs and infrastructure to do anything in China, we were able to slip, you know, behind the radar, under the radar, and just kind of put it all together. So once the product was established, the demand 
was through the roof. Like everybody wanted a financial solution for what they were doing in China. So we were able to start building business very quickly. Um, I think one of the key things that we did right was we digitized the whole process. That was, you know, we approached it as a fintech solution, not as a financial institution. So as opposed to trying to be bankers that were kind of running paper, we, we knew that we would never be able to handle the volume if we didn't automate. And so we automated the whole process and what that allowed the system to do is was to grow organically. So it became kind of this self-serve organic fintech solution for buy now, pay later in uh, Chinese sourcing. And, um, and that just caught on. Like as soon as we started seeing it work, you know, people were using it, they would tell their friends, their friends would come in and start using it. And we, it built very, very quickly. The, the ironic thing is um, obviously we launched the product into market in 2006, middle, middle to late 2006. 2008, we had the financial crisis. Everybody's banking lines, everything got seized up. And even we had our own set of problems, you know, pretty significant problems at that time. But the demand obviously just kept on going through the roof because now it wasn't even just that there was no financial solution, is that there was literally no financial breathing room for any of these companies. And so I think we right place, right time. Uh, we're able to, to build the demand side of this of this business very, very effectively. And actually the only thing that held us back was the supply side, meaning the capital to actually fund the business. So we grew to about 140 million in revenue in 2009. We probably could have gotten north of 200, maybe even to 250 million. We just didn't have the funds to, to write that business. And that was part of the reason why we decided to sell the company rather than you know fight through 2010 and try and continue to, to fill up the supply side of the, uh, of the equation. Yeah, I see. So um, can you talk us through that process around selling that business? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it always kind of happens serendipitously. So in, um, in Q4 of 2009, uh, I was approached by a, uh, a big factoring firm, second largest, I think, in the U.S., um, and just invited in to talk to the CEO. And, and so we just sat and chatted, and he just started asking the question of, you know, we're US only, we want to go international, you know, what are you guys doing? Should we do something together? And it just broached the, uh, it broached the subject of, hey, you know, maybe there's a, maybe there's a communion that could be created here or a union of sorts that could be created here. And at that time, we had already started talking to kind of these uh, boutique investment bankers, because we kind of already realized that um, we needed to think about kind of a, an exit strategy. Um, and so uh, we had already started putting packages and decks together around the concept of finding a buyer and, and that buyer, that particular company ultimately ended up, you know, over the next three months, we uh, consummated a deal and, and, you know, got the deal done and they took over the business and got their access to China, got all our customer list and got all the technology that we built. And so it was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting union, but it was, uh, I will say 2009 was a tough period. I mean, we were, I was saying no to business left and right. It was a very difficult business to run in that in that era, for sure. So you guys were affected? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we did. I mean, we still grew a lot. So we did about 80-something, maybe 87 million in, in 2008. And as I said, we grew to 137 million. I rounded up to 140, but it's actually 137 in 2009. Um, but it was, uh, it was a battle. It was a battle to keep all of our banks we had a whole syndicate of banks that were banking all our transactions. 
So we had to keep them in line. We were also underwritten by AIG and I, anyone that was around in 2008 knew that one of the big stories alongside Lehman and some of the others was that AIG was like on the brink of going under. And so being underwritten by AIG, having all the back, back bankers leaning on our AIG underwriting, AIG underwriting to facilitate the, the debt facilities, and then those banks themselves beginning to kind of sweep up and freeze their, their debt operations, their lending operations, it all kind of accumulated and just was a choke, you know, created a chokehold on the business. And so we were, we were battling through, um, AIG stood right by us, they were fantastic. We were battling through trying to keep all of these banks comfortable and happy and, and keeping the money moving so that we could actually facilitate the, the demand side of the relationship and of the business basically. So it was, it was definitely tough. I mean, if you ask my wife to be at the time, my wife now, She'll tell you that I, I woke up most mornings because I was in New York. We had offices in London and China and I was by six in the morning, I was pale green and trying to figure out how I was going to solve that day's problems. But those were, those were trying times. We had a couple of companies go um, into bankruptcy, but in the grand scheme of the portfolio, it was really nothing. Um, so we got, we did well there, but uh, NAIG stepped up, they paid out the underwriting on on anything that went under. So we we had a clean record in terms of collections and our ability to kind of run the money. But um, but it was tough. It was a tough market to do anything in fintech. So did you know that like fintech was going to be as big as it is now? Uh, back then, well, I knew. I mean, we started the company because we knew that there was a bunch of holes and people need to fill them. I cannot say I was as market savvy 15 years ago as I am today by any means. I mean, I wasn't looking around the market trying to figure out, you know, uh, what fintech was going to be in the world. I just saw a problem and went after it to fix it. So I think at this point in my career, I have a little bit more of a broader view. And so if I'm looking at a category or a market, I'm able to kind of see what's going on across the horizon rather than just pinpointing on a single uh, opportunity. But back then I was kind of like a steam train, <laughs> just like point me in a direction and I'll go through whatever walls I need to go through to make things happen. And, and that was pretty much the, the secret of how I operated like for many years until, um, you know, until I matured and just became more and more market savvy as a whole. Hmm. So you sold that company, then you went to Digital Ocean to do it again. Did you join yeah. as COO? Yeah, so it actually was a couple of years between the two. I um, actually got my first taste of just angel investing and sitting on boards and mentoring other founders and kind of the whole world I'm in now. I got that in between those two uh, opportunities. I was obviously just got myself really busy and just trying to think about what's the next thing I'm going to do. And then uh, in 2013, like three years later, actually, I was asked by a venture fund that had given a term sheet to DigitalOcean um, for their seed investment, their first money in, um, I was asked to go talk to the founders. Um, they wanted to kind of my insights on, on the business. And uh, I met with Ben Uretsky, who is uh, the CEO and kind of the lead founder of the group. And uh, we got along great. And, you know, he needed help just basically creating a, a structure and a kind of a foundation for the business to scale. And, and I stepped in and kind of helped them do that for two, three months. And and get the business in a place where it could close the investment round and it could actually begin to scale. So there's a whole bunch of things that we did to do that. Um, but ultimately, once the business got funded, um, you know, it was pretty clear the writing was on the wall. This was going to be a great business. And so I think 
you know, Ben needed me. I loved the business. It worked both ways. It was a win-win. So I officially took on the COO role and, and uh, for the next five and a half years, um, helped build the business right alongside Ben and, and founders just helped build the business from the ground up. Yeah, interesting. So um, you scaled that company uh, from the ground to you're well over a couple hundred million in annual recurring revenue. There's a bit of a pattern here, right? So I'd love to hear kind of if you could unpack a little bit of that framework for scale or, or anything there that you could share with our audience around kind of, because it seems like you're a really savvy yeah. operator. That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've had a couple of good runs there for sure. Um, I think uh, the key for me was pattern recognition, was kind of understanding what works and how to make it repeatable. Um, I think uh, we did that with China Export Finance and kind of understanding the flow and kind of the repeatability of the offering and, and how do we make it easy uh, for people to, to take advantage of it. And I think with DigitalOcean and, and, you know, all credit to the founding team, um, it was built uh, as a machine, it was an engine. And, you know, was, as it was launched, the, you know, the destiny was put in place. And, and for DigitalOcean, as opposed to the role I played at China Finance, where I was really driving everything forward. For DigitalOcean, my main focus, honestly, was keep up with it. You know, how do we make sure this company doesn't implode um, through expansion? And actually, one of the big things I've learned is the stresses that are put on a business as you scale the people, as you scale the operation, as you scale the infrastructure. I mean, it is not easy to scale a business and actually keep it, you know, keep it on the tracks and keep it really operating efficiently and economically. I think one of the, the greatest uh, achievements in DigitalOcean is not only did we achieve the growth we did, but we did it incredibly efficiently from a financial standpoint, like incredibly efficiently. And you look at similar companies across the board and they raised five, 10 times as much money as we did. And um, that was really, that just kind of was, was a great validation that we were building and continue. I mean, it, to, to this day, it is a really solid, operated business like financially and and physically it's operated incredibly efficiently and uh and that that was a great that was a great part of the outcome you know on that but uh but yeah it's uh, you know going back to why why do you see this growth i think the reason i was so excited about even joining is you could see the repeatability of the purchase you could kind of see the the direction that the customers would go in terms of expansion you could kind of see it all and all you had to do is really lay the tracks to allow them to take that journey themselves and so how do you create a machine and then guide your customers through that machine in a way that it's repeatable it's it's uh, organic it's you know viral and from that you just begin to see growth 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 and you can make little iterations along the way to get it working better and better and better but ultimately you know we built a machine that to this day the machine i think we built probably contributes you know 80 90 of the revenue that DigitalOcean has to this day and it's uh it's great to sit with the founders even today have a you know have a glass of wine or something and just watch this uh this thing that we built continue to kind of grow and, and expand you know beyond beyond our reach for sure yeah very interesting so you refer to the business as a, a machine why um because i think that we set the gears in the early days i think similar to the chinese for finance business and then the mark market took the business the rest of the way so 
it's a, it's a machine because it was automated in the way that it, it ran itself operationally. Like you could see the customer journey and how it operates and, and people were running themselves through the journey. And so it was just processing more and more demand in the market and it was creating more and more demand in the market. So once, once the, the core foundation of this business was built, everything beyond that point was like tweaks and iteration, but it was, we never had to rebuild. We never had to do big pivots. We would, we were never fighting to get to monthly revenue or having to like find a, a customer out of, you know, out of thin air to try and fulfill a, a projection. Everything just ticked along and we would see the monthly, you know, um, the monthly growth kind of on a pretty consistent and predictable level because we, we knew how it all worked. So the concept of machine is just the ability for it to run itself and the predictability of it. And that's, I think, pretty much what we built at DigitalOcean, which was really exciting. And I don't think every business is built to accommodate that type of operation, but I've definitely gravitated to, to that style of business. It, it just, it's a lot of fun to build and it's a lot of fun to, to kind of, you know, just see it take a life of its own. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs, people just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. You also talked about pattern recognition. Um, that's a really, really good trait that I see amongst successful founders or operators. Um, can you talk more to that? Because I think that is so critical when it comes to this idea of continuous improvement when you look to yeah. scale a business, you need to find the levers, right? You need to change the dials that are going to bring back the most yield, but you have to be able to recognize those patterns. Yeah, I think it's the secret to any good, efficient business. Um, if you don't recognize the patterns, you really don't know what to do. You really don't know how to iterate. And so, um, you know, patterns come in everything. It's like everything from the pattern of how, uh, you know, the customer acquisition process works to the pat pattern of, of how our demand, infrastructure demand works and how we have to, you know, build a process that's going to continuously fulfill our infrastructure to support our customer base. So um, if you can see things as repeatable, which is obviously de facto a pattern, then you can build on that. Uh, there are a lot of businesses out there, I think, that are built on the basis of, um, you know, big events, 
big things that make big big changes and big movements in the business. You know, definitely enterprise sales driven businesses. They'll go to cut a deal with a big Fortune 500, and that big deal will be a big pivotal point on the business and the business's journey. And then they'll grow modestly until they cut the next big deal. And you know, they're getting five, 10 customers a year if they're doing really well. And that's a very, very different type of business. With with the businesses that I find really interesting, it's where you see a process repeating itself thousands of times, millions of times potentially, and uh, and a wide range of customers all beginning to adopt a typical kind of process. And I think what I've what I've become, what I feel like I've become pretty good at is I can I feel like I could somewhat predict that if I'm putting these choices in front of someone. Um, they're going to take these routes and I can kind of map out the journey that I think they're going to go on. So as long as I lay out the right choices, I kind of know how they're going to behave. And if I know how they're going to behave, then I can determine the outcome of the business. Obviously, no one's 100% right. I get it wrong. It's not always going to be correct. But if you get it right more times than you get it wrong, then you're going to iterate towards a pretty good pattern and you're going to start seeing you know, returns from that. Yeah, that was fascinating. Thank you for sharing. So... Coming back to Digital Ocean, talk to us about kind of like what, what was the biggest challenge there and how did you navigate it? Yeah, as I said before, I think uh, I was always in the position of really make, make, making sure the company was going to be able to support, you know, the volume and to kind of grow in all aspects. You know, how do we grow our team? How do we grow our financial uh, position? How do we grow our infrastructure? You know, all these things lay under me. And uh and I think the biggest challenge was the accelerated growth of the organization. So previously, you know, I built decent sized organizations, but, you know, we're talking like 100 people. Uh, DigitalOcean is, you know, in my time scaled up to 500 plus people and it scaled up to 100 people in a, you know, within a year from kind of like 10 to 100, like basically in a 12 month period. So we were hiring like crazy and I think the the biggest thing that I learned was the importance of strategic organizational growth. You know, what a company looks like at 12 people is completely different to what it needs to look like at 50, which is completely different to what it needs to look like at 200. And you have to really understand the dynamics of the individuals and, and how people think to, to be able to build a business that is culturally and operationally in the frame of what you're imagining you want to build. And so um, what we did in, in my first kind of year, year and a half there is when we scaled up to like 100 people in a very short space of time, it was in the year 2014, we, you know, had built it as a very flat organization. It was this utopian mindset that, oh, everybody's equal. Everybody's going to work together. It's going to be this great, you know, ad hoc kind of, uh, dynamic uh, organization. And the reality is when you get to 100 people, that just doesn't work. When you have 60 engineers running around the hallways, not really knowing what they should be doing and looking for some leadership or looking for some leveling or some some understanding of vision and, and kind of coming together to create something really special, um, there needs to be a structure and a coordination to make that happen. And we didn't have that. So all our best engineers started leaving. Culturally, we were kind of really imploding. It was... It was uh, it was honestly a little bit of a disaster in the way that the business was growing. But the interesting part of that is the business kept growing. That's that's kind of the machine component. So we would look at it and say, we're imploding here. We, we're, this whole operation is a disaster. 
but our numbers continue to go up every single month. So that bought us so much leeway. Uh, and what it allowed us to do, you know, we came to a point where, you know, we all kind of, um, you know, the founders and I kind of came together and basically butted heads and, and had that argument of this is not the way to do it. Let's do it the right way. And so luckily in that situation, you know, uh, I got my way on that one, was able to pull the reins. Um, we, we totally reorganized how we were managing people. We leveled everything. We started creating a much more hierarchical structure as the business was growing into that need and, uh, and started hiring really good leaders in key positions and giving them autonomy and over time communicating differently and all the other things you have to do to create an organization that really, really, um, you know, breeds incredible talent and also, you know, attracts and excites incredible talent. And uh, would be really, you know, what's really um, amazing is so we did that in like January 2015. We kind of came together and just changed everything. And I hired actually a guy who's still working with me now at M13 called Matt Hoffman, who is, came in as our head of talent in around March, April at that time. And he and I partnered on it. And a year later, we were voted as like best place to work in New York. And we were so far from that at that point that it's just amazing that we were able to recover the culture and recover you know, the business operation and get the place really humming in such a short space of time. But it, it is a testament to how kind of malleable these young organizations are and how you can really jump in and mold something into, into something special pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah, no, that's an interesting story. Thank you for sharing. It comes back to kind of something that I've learned on my journey is that it's so simple, but businesses are built by people. And yeah, absolutely. It, it's your job as a founder to go out and find the best possible people you can. And with really great people, you can do incredible things. Yeah. But I think the one layer on top of that is once you found those people, you need to empower them to be as impactful and, and performant as possible. Because I think we were hiring great people in 2014, but the problem is the system wasn't there to allow them to be great. And so that's what frustrated them. And that's why they left. Um, but yeah, every, everything you said, absolutely hundred percent with that layer of just make sure you're giving them a pathway to be truly successful and then, you know, they'll do what they do. And that's, that's the key. Mm. So let's switch gears, talk about, uh, M13 investing. So how'd you end up there? What happened next? Yeah. So, uh, so actually years earlier, I'd met, uh, Carter and Courtney Rian, who are the founders of M13, um, and had gone to know them over a number of years. And uh, they they kind of started courting me. It was, you know, always started as kind of a little friendly joke, but they started courting me to come and work with them. Uh, actually, in around 2017, like a couple of years before I, I did. And um, if anybody knows Carter and Corny, you know, they're very persuasive. They're very, like, larger-than-life type characters. Uh, and uh, and so I, I agreed in 2018. So. As, as we were getting to 2018, DigitalOcean was beginning to think about IPO readiness. Um, and obviously I was kind of on the, you know, the, uh, the head of the needle on that. And so um, through 2018, the real focus was a number of things about getting us in a position where we would become IPO ready, including um, Ben deciding that he was gonna step down. He didn't wanna be an IPO, um, a public company CEO. Uh, you know, that's not where his skill set lay. And so there was a decision, he decided he was gonna step down and he was gonna hire a new CEO. And then we were gonna start trying to think about what does an IPO team look like? 
And so um, as those decisions were being made, I agreed to just start kind of advising and consulting for Culture and Corny and helping them kind of structure what M13 was going to be as, a, as this kind of new generation of, of venture firm. Um, and so I, I welcomed them through 2018 while in parallel working with the DigitalOcean team to bring on a new CEO, build kind of a lot of the mechanisms that would allow us to take the company public eventually. Um, I was fully vested. I was, you know, the, my economics were already set at DigitalOcean. And although I love the business, whole new team coming in, I was given the option of do I stay and, and uh, be part of that kind of next four year journey or, or do I not? And, and ultimately when the new CEO came in in the summer, I, I decided that it, you know, my wife also got pregnant. So there's like a lot of things that were changing. And I was like, you know, this is the time for me to make that move. And I was really, really enjoying the work that I was doing with Koch and Corny, kind of preparing for what was going to be at 13. Um, and so I, I uh, gave six months notice. I stayed through the end of the year, helped with the planning for the following year. I think I stayed on as an advisor um, for an additional year through 2019. But uh, as of the end of the year, I made the official move and I, I January 1, I was uh, a managing partner at M13 as a newly found career direction in, uh, in venture. Yeah, fun times. So you talk about kind of supporting a lot of founders on your roster. Um, mm. I'd love to delve a bit deeper, like how, how hands-on are you in helping them realize their vision? Yeah, I think that's the whole basis of what we wanted to build. So um, when I first talked to Cartoon Corny about, about M13, I think the thing that really inspired me was the shared vision that, um, you know, we'd all dealt with VCs before we'd all raised money and, and VCs are great. You know, it's a huge value add to a business, but there's always been areas where you're left wanting. And there's always been areas where like, oh, I wish my investors would help me more with this or help me more with that. And trust me, I've made enough mistakes in my career to recognize that if someone smart was on my shoulder and helping guide me around those mistakes, I could have accelerated things so much faster in so many ways. You know, and I've had, in DigitalOcean, we had Andreessen Horowitz, we had like, you know, pretty great investors. And so, um, you know, although they were very useful and helpful, there was kind of a whole generation of support that I don't think had really been created or, or pursued yet from a venture standpoint. And so, um, we built an organization that was very specifically oriented towards working more hands-on with our founders. And so we actually hired, you know, we overhired for our AUM, um, invested money in the business specifically to build this kind of operating group that obviously future funds would end up paying for, but for the time being, we were paying for it. Um, and uh, we hired, you know, we had four or five investing partners, but then alongside that, we had five or so operating partners. Um, I was considered an investing partner, but I was also an operator. So even the investing partners had operating um, experience. But the operating partners were very specific, are, are very specific experts in key categories of growth. So things like talent, finance, operations, brand, products, um, you know, data, like all these key things that we, we know are kind of key components of how you grow and manage the growth of the business. Uh, and we started investing and in doing so, the relationships we were building with our founders were much more operational and much less fiscal. So it wasn't that we were just coming in and counting the chips on the table. We were actually coming in and helping them strategize and plan, you know, how they're going to tackle the next problem. What is the next problem they're going to face that they don't even see yet? Um, you know, how do they build their organization to have them at the optimum success? 
And we kind of built this philosophy that the, that the fund is all about the success of the founders. The economics will take care of themselves. If you focus on making founders as successful as possible, the returns will, will naturally, you know, come back strong because, you know, um, success begets returns. So um, that's the approach we took. And as a result, it's, it's turned out fantastic. We have such a fantastic relationship with our founders. You know, we measure MPS once a year, and I think it's in the 88 range or something crazy like that, where we just have a, you know, incredible support mechanism and, um, and work very much hand in hand with them and help them through a lot of the challenges and help hopefully have helped a lot of our founders avoid big pitfalls like the ones I've, I've dealt with in my career, um, just by having seen it before and having experienced it before. Mm. So you talk about pitfalls. What are some key pitfalls you see uh, founders make and, and what are those workarounds from your experience? I mean, it definitely all starts with um, people in an organization um, and the decisions uh, these companies make at these early stages around how they're going to grow and how they're going to hire. Um, you know, the experience I just explained to you around DigitalOcean is just such a great example of making sure people are prepared for growth and set up for growth and not just diving in head first and then having to deal with the ramifications of cultural problems and kind of bringing things like cultural considerations into the, the conversation well before they've even recognized that it's an issue. So, you know, we see these companies, they've got 10, 15 people, they just raised 20, $25 million. They're about to ramp up to 80 people and, you know, making sure the conversation is centered around, okay, if you're going to do that, who's your first hire? It should be probably a head of talent. And inevitably they're like, why do we need a head of talent? And then you begin to explain the value of optimizing performance, the value of good onboarding, the value of culture and maintaining communications across the firm. And every founder that we know that actually made that hire is says it's the most valuable hire they've made in kind of the first year since we've invested. And so uh, little things like that, um, I think, are, are really key. And then, obviously, um, there's a lot of areas around, you know, companies' business models, little issues they have in there that we recognize that they maybe haven't seen yet that will hit them at scale. Um, helping them navigate around that, helping them figure out their pricing and how to think about, you know, the customer journey and how it's associated to, to you know, pricing mechanics, like a lot of little areas. What we've actually done is we've identified at this point, like 10 key areas where we have built now modules of how we can help guide them through a process of really considering, um, uh, you know, key components of the business as they, as they build, you know, the business. And one of them, as I mentioned, is pricing, but there's you know, a whole bunch of other ones. And so those, those are the things we do. We, we are really trying to make sure that, you know, they're having the right conversations and they're looking at the right things. And then wherever they feel like they're a little bit lost or just need a, you know, good guidance, they'll obviously come to us often and, and kind of present a situation to us and we'll lean on expertise or experience or whatever it is that we have to, to help them navigate through those situations. Yeah, awesome. And uh, when it comes to kind of like considering investment opportunities, um, what are you really looking for? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a handful of things. Um, I think the first thing is the people. Um, I think getting into uh, like leading an investment and actually, you know, being on a board and and running with a company for potentially five to ten years um, is just like taking a job. You know, it, you're basically 
investing in your future partners as it relates to that business. And so the people are so important. It's so important that you can work with them. It's so important that um, you can learn from them, but more importantly, they're willing to learn from you as well, because it's always a you know two-way street in that regard. And um, and that and that they're not you know that they are open to evolution and growth and, and the key things that we really you know push for and promote in, in our founders and our executives. Um, so the people first, the, the category is important to us. You know, there's key theses we have around certain categories and what's going to happen in that, in those worlds. And so we kind of look for those categories as, as the opportunities. But then we also look at what's the business model? What, what are the fundamentals here? Like some of these businesses are relatively early, but what are they trying to build? And is that viable? Is there an economic model that makes sense around that? Is there scale around that an opportunity that that uh, is large enough to to warrant you know the type of investment that we would want to make um uh and finally around all of that uh, to some degree i mean product obviously comes in hand with the business model but uh, validation is you know and depending on what stage we're investing in obviously validation is less or more important but some some validation that they understand their customer and they're building something that their customer needs and wants. And, um, you know, understanding how much validation they've built gives us more conviction to kind of write bigger checks and, and get more behind the business. Yeah, awesome. And when it comes to kind of scale opportunity for you guys, it's got to, you have to be able to see that you can achieve a, a unicorn billion dollar valuation, right? Yeah, I mean, we're writing big enough checks and at the end of the day, you know, we have a responsibility to our investors that we want to build big, meaningful businesses that have an impact in the world. And if you define it by dollars, then you're probably talking unicorn status at least. Um, but uh, but we need to make sure that at least we see the opportunity, even if companies don't quite get there, but build beautiful little companies that we're happy with that. We don't have a problem with that. But going into the investment, we want to make sure that we see the opportunity for a potentially a multi-billion dollar exit. And, and those are the things that excite us because we think those have much more of a meaningful impact in the world. Yeah, awesome. Um, last couple of questions, then we'll work towards wrapping up, conscious of your time, Carl. Um, as a mentor to many founders, uh, what's been the most rewarding thing? Oh, without fail, seeing founders succeed. <laughs> I know that's probably badly phrased, but <laughs> seeing founders succeed, like seeing founders achieve their dreams, most rewarding thing in the world. Um, there is a founder, he's actually a Teal fellow. Um, if he hears this, he'll be very happy I'm talking about it. But he, uh, he's a young guy. He, he uh, left Yale um, as a Teal fellow, so left the university to start this business with two other co-founders of his. And I first met him because I went to speak at a MBA class in Yale that he was auditing. I didn't even realize he wasn't an MBA student. He was an undergrad. And he walked me back to my car afterwards and was pitching me his idea. And I was like, ah, it's great, interesting, you know, all makes sense, but just young, full of vigor. And over the next six to nine months, he would reach out to me every now and then and the idea would evolve until it became something that felt very real. And you could see the passion and, and honestly, the core skill he had. And I, uh, and so I was like, all right, let's come in. And, you know, he's like, I want you to be part of this. He wanted me to, to kind of be involved. So we made an investment, we participated and we've been involved. And I think we invested probably somewhere in the range of a year, a year and a half ago at this point. And, um, and now he's realized everything that he wanted to build. It's all coming to life. Very young team, just so 
like impressive. And now he's closing, um, you know, his next round of investment and is inundated with demand. You know, every major firm you can imagine wanting to give him the money. He's literally calling me every day saying, I have so much inbound. Like he's already signed time and he's still getting endless inbound requests for pieces of the round. I'm like, that's life. Like you built a great business. Everybody wants a piece of it. Like, you know, you just have to keep your head straight and make sure that you pick the right team and you, and you continue to build that. And just seeing that kind of validation of his success and the way that the market is seeing him and his ability to continue to build what he's building. It's just, that's the greatest part of, of working with, with founders is just helping them realize this dream and this vision that they have. It's just so fulfilling. Yeah, that's amazing. And then to the next question is like, what's been the most difficult part as a mentor to many founders? When you realize um, a founder who's super passionate about what they're building uh, does not does not have a business that could work. And it's uh, how do you talk to them in a way without creating, you know, animosity or any kind of contention to actually share with them your thoughts about why their business is fundamentally flawed. And, uh, and those situations happen. Luckily, I think we've made some pretty good investments. So there's not many situations where we faced that challenge, but, you know, in situations where you do, it's just really tough. It's really, it's like breaking really bad news and then trying to, you know, get to terms with the person on the other side about what the real opportunity is in front of them and, and what their options are. And so, you know, obviously probably an obvious answer, but those situations are, are clearly the toughest in terms of uh, not even monetarily, it's really much more an emotional kind of, you know, commitment that you had that isn't working the way that you would have thought it would work. Mm. Yeah, that's fair enough. Thank you for sharing. Well, look, um, we'll work towards wrapping up, Carl. Um, we're going to move to the rapid fire questions. I've got three wow. questions for you. Uh, 30 second, one minute answers. Uh, what's the one immediate red flag that you see when you get an investment pitch? When, when someone doesn't really know their business. So the minute, uh, you, you know, people pitch their business, they're all excited. You ask them one or two questions and you begin to realize they don't know their business. They don't know their industry. They don't know their category. You know, this is all a pipe dream. They really don't understand what they're doing. And that's uh, an immediate red flag. So, you know, what's the counter to that? Make sure you really understand what you're building. Make sure you understand your business model. Make sure you understand your customer. Make sure you understand your category. It's the easiest thing for a VC to spot if you're coming in unprepared. What's one trait every founder needs to be successful? They need to be able to run through walls and they need to inspire. I think actually maybe even inspiration is probably a bigger one, but I would say the combination of those two. You need to be able to inspire. That's what gets you hiring the best people. That's what gets you raising the money. That's what gets you, uh, you know, makes you a leader. But then you need to be resilient. If you can't run through walls, you are not going to, you know, survive the challenges because there's a lot of them. So it's not an easy, uh, it's not an easy path. But if you can do it, you can build something amazing. Awesome. And then last one is if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? If you said anyone dead or alive, I could uh, I could give you a quick name. Any entrepreneur, there is like uh, quite a selection, like an interesting question. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would want to say the obvious, like an Elon Musk, but I'm thinking, uh, you know, Randolph Hearst or someone who did it in an era where there was like none of the tools that we have today. And how do you build, you know, uh, you know, such an empire in, in that period? So either an Elon Musk is just frankly, you know, a genius in my mind and just like understanding the way someone like that ticks is just an incredible thing or someone from kind of 50, 100 years ago that built an empire in an in a, in a environment where it was just very difficult to, to do the things that we do today. So like a Randolph Hearst or something like that. Well, look, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure, Carl. Had a ton of fun. You shared so much gold. And uh, yeah, thank you again. Great. I appreciate it. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.